stopped with my voice. But, um, and for the purpose of the recording, I just want to say that this is the session on using stories in the arts for transformational ministry in oral cultures. My name is Susie Brown, and I'm with the Global Che Network Service Team. I recently joined the Che Service Team about six or seven months ago, and uh, before that, I was involved in the oral world or the world of orality. Now, a lot of people, when we say that word, a lot of people hear morality with an M, but it's orality with an O. So it's really dealing with oral cultures, um, all of that that combined. And we're going to talk about that today. Um, so what I would like to do is I'd really just like to start us out with a video. That's enough of that. <laughs> Boo. Okay. Yeah, you can. <laughs> How many of you have heard the, period, the periodic table song? Some of you. Yes. Well, you know, I had never heard it before. My granddaughter, uh, she's 14 years old now, but uh, a few years ago she was in middle school, and she came home from school, and she said, Grandma, Grandma, I learned this song. And she started singing all of these complicated words that I was just, like, amazed and saying, oh, my goodness, how in the world? You just learned that today? So, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's one of those things that when we're in class and we're, we're looking at these big words and we're saying, okay, and we're trying to pronounce them and learn them, uh, suddenly, when you put it to a song, it really changes how our brains work and how we put all of that together. So, um, what I'd like to do is um, is I, I want to ask how many of you have heard of orality before? Okay, several of you. How many haven't ever heard of orality? Okay. Right. So I'm curious. Um, what do you, those of you that have heard about orality, could you give me a definition? What is your definition of orality? Telling a story. Telling a story. Yes. Okay. Anyone else? Transferring information orally. Yes. Very good. 
So taking information and transferring it orally instead of written. Okay. Anything else? Preference towards oral rather than written. Okay. So a preference toward oral instead of written. Very good. Okay, so what I'm going to do, because all of those things that you said are a part of orality, yes, um, I'm going to take you through a test. Now, it's an easy test, I promise. It's not anything extremely difficult. But I want you to tell me, what are these shapes? Okay, the first one, middle, okay. So if I were in an oral culture, might that be different? Might those shapes be different? Okay, you're getting there. Block, very good. All right, what about the, a TP? Very good. Okay, so what would the circle be? The sun. The sun, a ball. Okay, all right. You're okay. You're very good. What about which which item doesn't belong? Which item doesn't belong? The logs. Okay. The hammer. Okay. Oh, okay. So why the hammer? Who, who said that? You said that. Why the hammer? Well, those things are all related other than the hammer directly because you could axe or saw the wood. Did you just come from an oral culture? You must have. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. Yes. Um, American culture is three tools. Exactly. So we, group, we would group that together, wouldn't we? Okay. But we couldn't use the hammer if we're in an oral culture to saw the log or cut the log. Um, and that's, that's very good. And one more. Which item doesn't belong? You should be getting better at this. <laughs> saucer and a knife and a I mean, cup and saucer, knife, plate, and orange. Orange? How many say the orange? Okay. The plate. Who said the cup? Who said the cup? Why the cup? In the yellow scarf. And so. There you go. Yes, very good. I thought we were making orange juice, so. Oh, no, that would be actually, you're thinking along the same lines. <laughs> this is very good. So you actually did really well. This really speaks for itself. And, and you know, we really need to radically change or, or rethink how we do missions in oral cultures. Because a lot of times, and you know, we don't, it, this is kind of a very blatant way of, of thinking about it. But sometimes I think that, that um, we, we sometimes forget the differences um, in in oral cultures. So I'd like to move on. And so 
There are three approaches to training and teaching in oral cultures, and I really want to share those with you today. Um, and the first approach would be to teach them to read. Would you all agree that that's a good thing to do? And it is. So in all uh, oral cultures, uh, to teach them to read is a good thing, and we have done that. The second thing would be to oralize literate teaching, audio recordings and films. So that just means taking information that's already there and putting it um, and translating it into the mother tongue language or translating it into the uh, official trade language, wherever you're at. But then there's a third way that we can do this, and that's through orality. Now, I just want to say the first two are not wrong, and they're not bad, not at all, because that's been done, and it's been very successful. But I just like to help us to think about a different way, a different way of thinking about how we approach and train in oral cultures. Now, there, uh, when we talk about oral cultures and literate cultures, there are two different learning styles. And on the left-hand side is the literate book communication styles. And on the right are oral and traditional learning styles. Through literate styles, we lecture. On, uh, with oral styles, it's, it's more of repetition. So it's repeating things. And it's not just repeating things over and over or the same thing over and over, but it's repeating the same information over in different ways. And we'll, we'll actually talk about that and see more of that later. In literate um, cultures, we, we like to outline everything. But in oral cultures, they, they love the narrative. They love the stories. So you talked about stories being a part of orality. Um, and it's very true. In um, literate cultures, they like to summarize, whereas events are important. So festivals things where people get together and um, celebrate. That's huge in oral cultures. We like to summarize things as a literate culture, and they like events. We like to divide things into parts. That's a, a big thing where we can, you know, take things and, and break it apart and really talk about it and analyze it. Uh, in oral cultures, they like stories and dramas and music. We like to study and reference things. They would rather participate or they love to participate. We're very individualistic and they're community and discussion-oriented. We're more abstract. We like to think abstractly. They're concrete thinkers. And just as we went through 
the, the little test, we were thinking very abstract. And um, you saw where they think very concrete, you know, where um, it's functional, being able to use things that's functional. We like knowledge, and they want to experience things. So it's not just about the knowledge, but it's, it's about experience. And how does this apply to my life? And so I, I, I really just wanted to go through that. Um, I know I went through a little quickly, but I, I just wanted you to get a feel of the differences between oral and literate. And in going back with stories, it is much better to use, especially stories of the Bible, um, because they do love stories. And 75% of the Bible is narrative. So it's actually pretty easy to do. So I want to talk about the keys for working in oral cultures. So... Um, in order to, to work in oral cultures effectively, we need to understand oral cultures. So what, what is an oral culture? How is it different from literate? And we just talked about that. Um, is it, it's, it's not just a communication style, but it's a, a, a different learning style. So it's just the fact that they learn differently. And it's also about how they live in community instead of individually. And another thing about oral cultures is they do like to repeat things. They like to repeat things over and over. And uh, it, it's really interesting because I think a lot of times we tend to not want somebody to repeat information to us. It's, like, it's kind of like, I've got it, I've got it, don't repeat it. And that's that's kind of our... our one of the things that that um, we we have this this um, fear of is somebody repeating something to us, but for them it, it's just a part of of how they learn and how they retain information. And because of they learn in different styles, uh, that's where the oral arts come in, adding songs, dramas. Dance, poems. The native tongue language and the mother tongue language is really important too because um, mother tongue language is, is their heart language. So the difference between um, mother tongue language and uh, the trade language of a country is the the language that someone in a village grew up with. And it, it may be close to the trade language or it may be something entirely different, but it's their heart language. It's, it's how they function. It's who they are. And when they hear their heart language, they come alive. When they hear their heart songs, they come alive. Uh, culturally, when things are done in their... Uh, Music and their arts, they come alive. And so that's when the oral arts do become a key 
the story, the music, and the drama. And then also a part of this is discussion and dialogue. So they really like to discuss the story. They really like to be able to um, talk about it. And after they've talked about it and discussed it, it becomes something that, that is, it goes into to who they are and it begins to change how they look at things. So, how does this work? Well, at this point, um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to bring my husband. I'd like to bring my husband up and actually talk a little bit about this because we work together on a project in North India with Woodcliffe India, um, and we did a, a training there. And so, I really want him to actually let you. I probably should get the microphone. Yes. Yeah, Susie and I are um, privileged that since 2006 we've been able to work together as a team in, in the field of orality that she talked about. And uh, just a little bit about our journey, it did start with scripture storytelling. Um, you know, how do we memorize Bible stories and communicate those as story songs, dramas, as Susie's explained, in uh, various parts of the world. We worked a lot in Africa and North India. And then along the journey, I don't know how you all are, but God sort of takes you to another step. And we joined a ministry out of Dallas, Texas called T4 Global. We were assigned to go into North India on two projects, work with 23 languages. Um, I barely speak English. Um, so that I, we didn't go because we were linguists, but we were teaching the process, which Susie's asked me to describe to you. And my background is business, and I'm sort of the process guy. So I guess that's why she, she asked me to do this. But... In addition to making audio recordings of story songs and dramas, they wanted us to help take these language teams through community health information or community transformation information. The same process, how do you put those into story songs and dramas? So our challenge with these groups, we were uh, learning on the fly, you might say, um, and, and that's how we got connected actually to community health evangelism. Um, you know, so I'll explain, because basically the process was you know, the first step was on the community topic, transformation topics, they had to identify what would be the topics that would be most important. Now, we had done that with Scripture. You know, what would be the most important stories? If you could pick 35 stories from the Bible, what 35 stories in your culture would you prioritize to make an audio recording of? So we knew how to do that with Scripture. You know, you had to have creation, fall of man, some Old Testament stories. You had to have Jesus being born death, burial, and resurrection. Um, I always hate it when technology beeps at me. But um, <laughs> Anyway, um, but we had never done that, and so the, the people we worked with said, well, just send them, send them out to government agencies and pick the topics and go find information because they had to get accurate health information. I mean, if this is about health, you want it to be accurate, and when we were working with Wycliffe India, this revelation hit because one day one of the team members that you saw in the picture there came to me with this manual and he said, can we use this? And it was the Che lessons. So it was the community health evangelism um, printout, hard copy. He had been through some Che training. And we said, sure, because it meets the qualifications. So they began the process. So they collect the information. 
they identify what needs to be remembered. And in the, if, you, if you've worked with community health evangelism uh, lessons, you know they very quickly list as good literates. We list what are the training objectives of this lesson. You know, what do we want people to remember? And so they begin to write that down, what needs to be remembered and recalled, and then develop a story, develop a narrative, a song or drama that contains that information. And we gave them three three rules on the community health and uh, society. They did societal issues, too, like corruption, um, violence, domestic violence were big in, in India. But it, one, it had to be scientifically accurate. Um, you know, we could tell you stories. They came and somebody had some, you know, cell phones give you cancer and one of those articles and some of you chuckle. So you've seen them. And we said, well, is this scientifically accurate? Is it what the doctors would, would tell you? Um, one of the guys with corruption came in with a story that dealt with uh, rape and it was, you know, women should dress differently. Well, that's what their church said, but it's not what you know, was, was accurate. So one, it had to be scientifically accurate. It had to be culturally appropriate. You know, as you work across cultures, there are different topics that have to be presented culturally appropriate, especially in North India where we're working, where you have, um, they wanted to do health issues with women, but they had to be addressed appropriately by women to women. Um, they had other kinds of issues in their villages, so you had had to make sure it was culturally appropriate, and it has to clearly communicate. Uh, I don't know how many of you have worked cross-culturally, but, you know, translation is full of little bumps. You know, words, literal translation, it doesn't always work. Uh, one of my favorite I learned in India, um, as I look around the room, I have, I have a friend from India back there, maybe he'll verify this, but in America we say somebody is wise as an owl, the bird. In India, if you call somebody an owl, I was told in North India, it meant the exact opposite. They're dumb as a box of rocks. They're an idiot. We had one team doing a Bible story that, you know, Jesus calls the Pharisee to brood of vipers and snakes. They told that story in a community and everybody cheered because they worship snakes. So, so these three rules were laid out with the teams that it had to be scientifically accurate. They had to show us where the information was coming from going into the story. It had to be culturally appropriate, meaning that it's presented in a way that the church or the culture that they're in, whether they're church or non-church people, would accept it, and that it had to clearly communicate. And that was the process we would then, we, we took 23 languages teams through that with a lot of interesting stories and I'll give the microphone back to Susie because she wants to tell you about how one of those stories went. Thank you. Oh, yes, of course. And, um, and that's how we did it. But, you know, it's interesting because if, if we, if we would had have had Che in the beginning, we wouldn't have had to, you know, all of that is included in Che and Che lessons. And so, um, again, if you're interested in finding out more about Che, we actually have um, some some of our team members here. There's Brian. They, they came late, so that's why I kind of got started. And uh, Brian Bentz, and he's our operations person, facilitator. And then there's uh, Terry Dalrymple. And he's a coordinator for
Forte, and he's been doing it a long time. So, um, and then there's Jody, and Jody uh, actually uh, works with Children's Che, and she takes care of our curriculum and all of that. So, um, if you have any questions, you can see any three of them afterwards too. Um, so what I want to do is I want to take you through one of these stories so that you can actually experience it and understand that this story was developed by um, someone in North India on our Whitcliffe team. So the things that they cho- chose and the way they chose to say it uh, is a little bit different than what we would, but that's okay because in all cultures things are said differently. This particular one is about nutrition, but they call it malnutrition. And so I'm just going to go ahead and tell you the story. In the village of Nahada, there was a man named Muna. His wife, Kanchan, was pregnant with their first child. Her mother-in-law also lived there, was very strict with what Kanchan was eating. One day, she told her daughter-in-law, the less you eat, the more, comfortable, the more comfortable you will be when your baby is born. So obeying her mother-in-law, she began eating less. But instead of getting better, Kanchan began getting weaker day by day and became very ill. So her mother-in-law made a promise to the gods and goddesses by conducting a puja, which is a prayer, at her house for health. Many people from their neighborhood and relatives attended. Among them was a woman named Madhu, who was working in a nearby health center. After the puja, the mother-in-law invited everyone to eat. While they were eating, Madhu noticed that Kanchan was not eating anything. Madhu went over to her and asked, Why aren't you eating? Well, my mother-in-law told me that for a comfortable delivery, the mother must not eat very much. And Madhu couldn't understand why she wasn't eating, and so she decided to ask more questions to find out why. So she said to her, If you don't eat good food, you will become very weak with various diseases. The growth of your child inside will be affected, and you will not have enough milk for the baby to eat after it's born. This can be life-threatening for you as well as your child. So please eat good food like rice and roti bread, pulses, fruits, vegetables, milks, and eggs. When you eat a variety of foods, it will give you and your child good health before and even after delivery. But you must be very careful not to eat too much either. I have seen some women who were overweight and they had problems during and after their delivery if they eat too many sweets, breads, white rice, and things that contain white flour. It can lead to high blood pressure and stroke and heart attacks. They are more likely to have joint problems and have less energy, so they can't move around and get exercise they need. It can also increase the problems during labor and delivery. As soon as she finished, her mother-in-law walked in, and and Kanchan told her everything that Madhu had said to her. (coughs) Madhu asked if she could take Kanchan to the health center so the doctor there can better advice, give better advice. 
And after she heard all of the details from Madhu, she agreed that it would be better to take Kanchan to the health center. When they arrived, the doctor made an initial checkup and decided to admit her. He immediately prescribed a glucose drip to hydrate her. He told her family that if they had waited a few more days, she, she might have died. She must be given food at, inter- at regular intervals as soon as she gets home since she has not had enough food to eat in the past few weeks of her pregnancy. And when you prepare her food, you need to use iodized salt as this will help to keep her body hydrated. I have prescribed her tablets of iron, calcium, and folic acid that she is to take daily. After a few days, Kanchan was discharged from the hospital, and when she returned home, her mother-in-law and her husband took special care to give her the right foods. Gradually, her health improved, and at the end of the year, she gave birth to a healthy child. Everyone in their house and neighborhood became very happy, and the story of Kanchan was an inspiration for all of those in the village. Over time, the villagers began to consult with the doctor whenever someone was pregnant. So that is the story of malnutrition. So, what did you see in this story? What did you see in this story? There was a desire for her to be obedient to her mother-in-law. There was a desire for her to be obedient to her mother-in-law. Okay. Very good. First, I thought it was a story, but then I realized that you were actually teaching me something. Oh. So I learned all of these things, but through this, a story, so it's things that I'll probably actually want to hold on to and remember, whereas if you had just given me a list to memorize what you're supposed to eat or not eat during a pregnancy, I would have been, like, boring, but if you, the story made it interesting. The story made it interesting. So all of the, the health information, the story made it interesting. Okay. And you, you think you can remember pretty much of it because of the way. Eat iodine salt. What else did you see? It was, it was culturally sensitive with the role of the mother-in-law being supreme. Okay, it was culturally sensitive because the mother-in-law has everything to do with everything in this story. And in some cultures that's true. And people could identify Culturally appropriate. And, and familiar. Familiar. Yes. So it had names that were the names that were that were local names. It had the name of the village. It had uh, if you if you looked on down here in, in the story, it talked about pulses. A lot of people ask me what pulses are, um, and that's common to India. Uh, pulses and in the villages especially they eat pulses so that's a good thing you know I, I lentils. lentils yeah it's I was gonna say beans but yeah yeah so it's protein and it's because they don't eat a lot of meat in the villages so that would be so um, one more thing that you Trust in a relationship with health professionals in their community, 
that's interesting. Yeah. So because of the health professional, the nurse, that came and talked to her and gave her all of this advice, it really helped her to see, and her mother-in-law. So in the end, the mother-in-law, which I know that, you know, that doesn't always happen, but when you're in a situation in a community and you're discussing it and you're, you're going through it with, with questions um, like this in the community, then they're able to talk that through and they're able to experience it and some people um, are able to, to change their ideas. Yes. Got her permission? That's a good point. Absolutely. Also included her husband in something that husbands in many cultures are not included in. That's true. So she asked the husband and talked to the husband about it so that and she could he, get his. He helped at the end with getting her to the. Absolutely. That's a good point. So the husband. So because of time, I want to move on, but we could discuss that story and talk about that story um, a lot. Um, Can I ask a question? Sure. The story was written by the health promoter? No, the story was written by uh, an actual uh, indigenous person. Um, sorry. And the health promoter gave the indigenous person the, the background information that was included in the story? They took the background information from a Che lesson. It so came from a Che lesson. We were working with Wycliffe India. They put together a team who were mainly trained as translators, not as healthcare professionals. So they took the Che lesson, and from the Che lesson, they developed the story. Yes. So I, does that help explain? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I, I should have been a little bit more, um, uh, you know, told you a little bit more about how they got that information, but yes. Yes, I think at the very beginning, thanks for, for saying that. Um, if you want to know more about Che, uh, we have a booth. Che has a booth here. Uh, so I would, you know, I would suggest that, that you go and um, find out more about Che. But, okay. Uh, because it would, it would take a, a little more time to community health evangelism. Um, so I, I want to move on and, and leave questions for the end. Um, I want to tell you about Sabita uh, and the story of Sabita because um, recently I was in India and Sabita became a big part of, of something that, that helped me to realize a few things, but Sabita lives in a village outside of Patna, which is North India. And North India is considered the slums of India. Sabita, when I went to visit her, and this would, was the first time that I had met Sabita, and I met her through a friend that had actually done uh, the Women's Cycle of Life uh, training with Che, um, and Sabita, when I first met Sabita, she uh, stood all of 
to hear on me. And as you can see, she has a cane. And if she were to stand up, you can't see it in the picture, but if she were to stand up, she looks like she doesn't have a leg. She looks like she has one leg. She was born with a leg that uh, is actually uh, up underneath her. So she's had probably about four children and lives in this village. And as you can see, she's always smiling. She's always happy. But Sabita had gone through uh, a training with Che, and she was using uh, Che and very successfully. And it was a wonderful, wonderful thing for her. And um, she did a lot of community um, she did a lot of discipleship training. And so, um, but Sahita is, is someone who is very close to the grassroots. And um, she's literate. She can read and write. But she's, she communicates as an oral learner. So when... When I, um, I decided while I was there to actually share this story of malnutrition with her, and she became very excited after she heard the story, um, I asked her a few questions. I said, do you, do, you, um, do you think you could learn this story, and do you think that you can, could tell this story? And she said, oh, yes, this story is so wonderful. It's, it's great. I, I, I love it. Uh, it has all of the information in it. And it's, it's great. And then I said, well, could you put a song with it? And she said, oh, yes, I'm, I write songs. I'd love to write songs. And so um, it, it was just a really wonderful time of talking to her about, uh, this, this, about what she had done in Women's Cycle of Life and how she was training and, and being very successful. Um, and so the next day... We did a training with some other women, and after I shared the story of malnutrition, I asked them to actually put it to a drama. So I want to show you a little bit. We won't do, well, we may be able to, to go through this whole thing, but it, it is in the mother tongue language, so you're not going to be able to understand. But after you've, uh, but since you've actually heard the story, then you'll probably be able to see as it goes along the story, the malnutrition story. We've also edited this down, so it's not the whole story. <laughs> they love drama, and they love being dramatic.
This is where she is doing the puja, the prayer. Sorry about the laughing, that was me. And the big final ending is coming up. <laughs> and there is the reward. And they are so resourceful, and they really find ways to do these dramas. that I was talking about, she wrote a song during this whole drama that was happening and started singing it. So she is actually telling the whole story through song. So that's just an example of how, uh, you know, we think about stories and songs and dramas and, and for us, if, if I were to say, okay, we're going to break up into groups right now and you're going to do a drama, you're going to do a, you're going to come up with a song, I could, I would probably see a little bit of panic on your faces <laughs> at this very moment. Um, but when you're working in oral cultures, they just, they come alive. They just, they say, oh, this is so familiar. This is, I can really do this. Um, and so it becomes a joy to be a part of seeing this happen. And I want, to refer, I want to refer back to the very beginning song because um, there was a lot of information that was in that song that was very difficult. And so you really can take information, whether it be community health, transformation, information, and put it into a story form because it's, it's, really, not that, it's really not that difficult. And not only that... But they are oral communicators. They are storytellers, and they do this all the time. So for them to memorize a long story is, it, you know, it's, it, it depends on the person. I mean, in oral cultures, we have seen some people that are better at storytelling than others. But they can, they can learn it, and they can do it, and they're accurate. They are, are very good at that. But once they've heard the story... And then they sang the story, and then they've danced the story, and then they've done a drama with the story. Then they know the story, and they live the story, and they love the story. And then it can be orally, just orally passed on to someone else in the village. And that could be even through events, or it can be individually, or it can be while they're with women. It can be while they're doing dishes, while they're doing chores. So there's all different ways that that can happen. Okay. We are to questions. Is there a way to identify a group of people that may be um, oral learners? Um, I work with 
Somali refugees mm -hmm. in Ohio, and their parents and grandparents are clearly orally dominating, um, mm -hmm. or like that's what takes precedent. But the kids have mainly, at least this generation now, they've pretty much grown up in the U.S., mm -hmm. but their households are still very mm -hmm. orally acclimating. So it's kind of hard to decipher. I mean, some things we pick up on, they love music, they love mm -hmm. drama, but they are being forced to learn in a written context in their schools, so they're also adapting to that. Absolutely. So is there, do you find, like, there are trends in finding how, when someone's an oral learner? Well, I would say that if they're from an oral culture, they're an oral learner. Okay. So, and we see that, we see that, well, we see it in India, we see it in Africa. So that even though somebody is very literate, mm -hmm. they're still from an oral culture. So there, there's a lot of things about who they are that's, that's still oral culture uh, and, and still oral. So you talk about how they love songs and dramas. That's because they're from an oral culture. They grew up in an oral culture. And then even their children, because they've been in that and they've grown up in it, they are, you know, oral learners. So um, we're from an oral culture. This would be a good place culture. to plug the uh, – Susie and I have been part of the International Orality Network. And if you go to orality.net, uh, there are a lot of resources or, on orality, and there are actually some academic people, more academic than Susie and I, we're not mm -hmm. uh, profess professors and academic no. people, who have devised, devised some tools that will help you assess the, uh, you know, if a culture is oral um, or, or more literate, sort of on a scale. Uh, but uh, that's a, a good resource is orality. O-R-L-A-L-I-T-Y dot net. Yeah, and it is a good follow place. Follow the links to a lot of different resources. Yes. But that's a good question because that's... And, and it does point to cultures are always changing. Um, even in India, we saw the big difference. We were working with 20-year-old 20, 20 translators with Wycliffe India who were very different than um, some of the older pastors that we had been working mm -hmm. with. So culture changes. Mm -hmm. And um, I just have a question about incorporating drama or because I noticed when our translator translated, it's just very much telling it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a lot of drama and hand motions mm -hmm. and and um, so much of what you're saying it, it's almost like you have to act it out. <laughs> You know, that's, that's also a question that, um, yeah, gee, I wish I had like a whole nother hour, but um, because uh, being able to, um, there are diff different cultures do storytelling differently. So some, peop some cultures are very uh, demonstrative, but some cultures, whenever they tell stories, or in, uh, for instance, in the, in the Native American culture, if, to tell a, a holy story, because we we also dealt with uh, we also have done um, 
biblical stories and, and worked with biblical stories. But in, in a Native American culture, they stand very quietly with their head, their hands to their side, their, their head down when they tell a holy story. And so there's not any movement, there's not any, you know, there's, there's not that demonstrative way of telling it. So I would say that that's, that's cultural in, in how stories are presented, how dramas are presented. It, it's all different in different places. We've been to Africa. We've seen the story told differently. It's it, the first part is told, and then the dance is done, and then the second part, a dance is done, and then the third part, and the dance is done, and then it's repeated over again. So there are just different styles in different ways. But I would, I, I might suggest to you that it, is your translator a Nepali translator? She's from from Nepal. Okay. Uh, I would I would say that if 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 you want if you wanted her to tell the story more dramatically, you might just ask her, how would you do this story in your culture? Would you just speak the story or would you tell the story, you know, like you feel the story? You might challenge her to memorize the story. I've memorized some biblical stories. It's easier to tell a story and be dramatic when you've, when you've actually memorized it. Um, and then with dramas, you know, that can actually be told and shown, you know, acted out and be, you know, do, do the same things. Use the things that you would use in your culture and do this as if you were in your culture. So... You know, the point yeah, Susie's making at the end is actually, I would say it's a starting point when you're working in an oral culture is go as a learner and learn how they tell stories. And so you may, if you're working with Nepali refugees, sometimes just say, tell me a story. Can you guys tell me a story from your culture? It doesn't have to be a religious story. It's just a story. And then be an observer. You know, how do they, are they demonstrative? Are they quiet? Like Susie said, in Ghana, where we were going, they divided every story for the community into three parts. They told part one, they sang part one, they danced. They told part two, they sang part two, they danced. They told part three. And uh, so every culture has sort of storytelling structures. Um, as she demonstrated, like the Navajos, you know, if you go in demonstrative with a lot of action, they, they, they enjoy it, but they don't pay attention to it the same way they would a sacred story. So the, the other quick thing, if a lot of you are working with translators in the field, I, I learned this from one of my translators. He he said, how do you want me to be? Do you want me to be a translator, an interpreter, or a mediator? And, and there are translators who just want, they feel like you've hired them to translate word for word what you've said. And sometimes that's not helpful because your word may not translate quickly into their word. We could tell you tons of stories, but we don't have time. He said, I can be an interpreter, which is sort of I help interpret what you're saying into the culture, but the best is to be a mediator where you work with them and they help you actually communicate most effectively, um, which means they're going to give you some feedback. They're going to say, well, what are you really trying to say here and what are the words really meaning? And it's something that um, if you're working with a translator, I recommend you prepare um, and not just stand up on a Sunday and go at it. <laughs> we could all tell you horror stories. But, yeah. but, um, but the first place to start is really how does their culture tell a story? And if you've never done that with refugees, you know, that can be a fun evening. Just How would you tell us a story from your culture? 
Tim and I have not worked with refugees at this point, but we've actually been asked to do that. Um, that's a whole, whole other direction, and um, it, it, it's, it's such an interesting thing. So, yeah. Any other questions? So your goal is to have the stories passed along from first person to person. I feel like when everyone tells a good story, it gets embellished each time it's told. <laughs> How do you account for like, keeping the medically accurate information mm-hmm. and not letting them add their own tidbits? Yeah. Well, again, um, you know, it has to be scientifically correct. Oh, you know, you're talking about passing on the information. Well, you've already shared the story with the community mm-hmm. as they go on to tell it again. Do you try to encourage them, don't change anything. Oh, them. absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that's that's why when we when we talk about training stories, yes, it, it, you can't embellish, you can't add anything. Um, you, you, especially when, when you're talking about stories from the Bible, you don't want to add anything and you don't want to take anything really away. You can shorten some stories biblically. But uh, as far as community, the community health stories, you know, that's, uh, again, I don't know if you remember uh, Tim talking about during our training in India, we told them that they um, could not add, it had to be scientifically correct. So they couldn't add their own ideas about how something happens and they can't elaborate on that. So, yes, that, that, that would be checks and balances with, you know, whatever, what the organization is, how the structure is set up in that organization. Um, it would be the responsibility of, you know, whoever is in leadership and in charge to make sure that that happens correctly. Also, we find in oral cultures, they work in community, and so the community will self-correct. In fact, I had a friend tell me a story. He, uh, he was in a, I can't remember whether it was where he was at, but the, uh, the pastor was telling a story and giving wrong information, and the, the congregation would shout out, no, 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 that's not what happened. That's true. And he'd go on and he'd give wrong information, and the congregation would shout out, no, 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 that's not what happened, and they'd correct him. And afterwards, the, the American said, don't you know that story? And he said, absolutely I know that story, but that's how they learn, by correcting me. And, and so, you know, you just have to understand and let the community self-correct. I think we're about out of time. Oh, yes. Any one last question? Or? One last. I think it's, uh, we've got about five minutes. My husband is um, from the Amazon, and he is a oral culture, so. Oh, yeah. Um, I thought, I asked him if he had something to add because I thought that would be kind of interesting because he is what we're talking about, and that's the way he learns. And I was talking like, look, this is how you learn. This is how we learn. <laughs> I learn. This is why we're so different. But um, obviously we've worked it out. <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I just asked him what, how he would want, how he would evangelize mm-hmm. to his culture, oh. our culture, because I've adopted his culture. And he said, well, first of all, we play football, right? <laughs> the most important thing. Then when they're all hot and sweaty and they're sitting there, we would give drinks and, um, and do a drama and then tell the story because there's that repetition. So I thought that was cool just to... So they do a drama first and then tell the story. Right. And then there's that conversation mm-hmm. and people get saved. So. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. That's a great so, example. You go to a football, uh, soccer, you know, field, and then invite just the guys who are there playing. And that's an event. Yeah. <laughs> Skinning together in this community. Yeah, that's what oral cultures are all about. That's very good.
Okay. Well, so thank you. Awesome. Thank you very much. You're welcome.